It's great to see you guys again this morning. Great to be back here. Um, if you've not met me yet, or I've not met you yet, my name's Jamie. I lead the Bradley Stokes site of City Church, uh, just up the A38 a little, where I've uh, been already for the, uh, for the earlier service this morning. But it's great to be back in Cotton with you guys. If you've got your Bible or your phone with you, just want to turn to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 10, and we're going to kick off there. And I'd like you, while you're doing that, just to go back in time with me in your imagination, a few thousand years, to, uh, to Israel, and to a kind of a regular guy, really, an average Joe kind of guy, uh, by the name of Saul. He's uh, not particularly well known, he comes from a not particularly distinguished family in a not hugely distinguished part of the country, but unbeknownst to Saul, God has got a plan for his life that would see him become the first ever king of the nation. And through a, a, a kind of a bizarre and slightly comic set of circumstances involving some missing donkeys, uh, Saul winds up at the, on the front doorstep of this guy called Samuel, who really was, at the time, the most prolific and the most powerful prophetic person, really, on the face of the earth at the time. And being the prophet that he was, of course, Samuel had been told by God that, that Saul was coming, so it wasn't a a surprise when he knocked on his door and uh, asked for a bit of help with the donkey situation. And actually, he was able to take him inside and give him a cup of tea. I'm sure he must have given him a cup of tea and, and say, hey, actually, there's something rather more important I want to talk to you about. And so we pick the story up in First Samuel chapter 10. I'm just going to read certain bits of it. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head. It's a bit strange, isn't it? You go around someone's house asking for a favor and they pour oil on your head. That's, that's not, not the kind of thing we really do in our culture. And kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And then he goes on to describe, and he describes in some detail, actually, all the events that are going to happen to him the next day, where he's going to go, the people he's going to meet, what they're going to have, what's going to happen, and so on. And this all comes to pass exactly as, as Samuel said. And then I'll pick up on uh, verse 6. I love this verse. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you'll prophesy with them, these people that he's going to meet, and you will be turned into another man. Don't you love that? The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you'll be turned into another man. And now, when these signs meet you, when all these things do actually happen, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Verse 9, and when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day, exactly as Samuel had said. And they came to Gibeah, and behold, a group of prophets did meet him. And the Spirit of God did rush upon him, and he did prophesy among them. And when those who had known Saul previously saw how he prophesied, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? I want to, spo oh, I want to, spoke? I want to speak this morning about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I kind of want to say from the outset, actually, when we're talking about the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we are talking about the gospel. Amen? When Jesus died on the cross, when he substituted himself, taking the place where really we should have been, 
bearing the punishment, bearing the judgment that should have fallen on us for all the mistakes and all the failures and the things that we've done wrong in our life, when he stepped into our place to take those away, the end game that he had in mind wasn't merely that we would be forgiven. It's wonderful that we are. But actually the Bible describes the goal of what Jesus was doing as reconciliation. It's a restoring of relationship with God where we know him intimately and personally. It's literally being reconciled with God. Probably the most famous words that ever came from the lips of Jesus were John 3.16. Jesus said that that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, whoever just, just puts their trust in him, wouldn't perish, wouldn't perish in punishment, wouldn't perish in judgment, but they would have eternal life. Slightly less famously, Jesus later on said, and this is what eternal life is, that we would know God personally for ourselves. Amen. So when we're talking about being filled with the Spirit, when we're talking about the anointing of His presence in our life, that we're talking about the gospel, the eternal life that we're being called into. It doesn't begin when we die. We're not, we're not being brought into eternal death. This is, this is the life that God calls us to. You, you might have heard Christians bandy this word anointing around a bit. It's, kind of, it's not really a word that we have in 21st century Western culture. You know, if, if we came in here this morning and I started pouring oil over people's heads, you'd probably think you'd come to some freak show and, and, and leave quite quickly. It's not really a concept that we have. So I just want, to pour, just, just want to pull out a few kind of details from this passage which help us to understand what was going on here. So you'll notice right from the outset that that Samuel took a large jug, it would have been a jug probably of olive oil, and he poured it very literally over his head. It would have been a very down-to-earth, very messy business. And oil in the, in the Bible is always a symbol, always a picture of the Holy Spirit. And you see, whenever a person was anointed, either they were anointed maybe to be a king, maybe they were anointed to be a priest, the, the, there was always a spiritual impartation that came alongside the physical pouring out of the oil. There was always a a spiritual component to what happened. And and you can see this very dramatically in the life of Saul, that that when he was anointed with the oil, he was also anointed with the Spirit, and and he was utterly transformed. So that all the people who knew him, all the the people who'd grown up with him as a kid in the school playground were like, what has happened? What has come to this guy? Something's changed. He says, the Spirit of God will rush upon you and you will be turned into another man. Literally, his very sense of identity, the very sense of who he was, was changed as God came to abide in him. And suddenly there was a cutting edge, there was an empowering to what God called him to do. He said, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do because God's with you now. It's not just you laboring away on your own. There's something noticeable, something distinct and tangible when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person. Another thing to note is that when Saul was anointed, when anyone in the Bible was anointed, they were anointed with purpose. I've come across some Christians sometimes, they're like, oh God, I just want the anointing. And I think, wow, that, yeah, that's brilliant, that's such a biblical thing to desire. What, what, what for? Oh, I don't know, I, I, I just want the anointing. You see, he says, actually, he has anointed you to leadership. He was anointed. He was given a, a cutting edge on his government, on, on his role on the battlefield. Everything that he did, it was for a purpose. Even when Jesus began his, 
began his kind of earthly ministry. He stood up one day in the temple, or in the synagogue rather, and he opened the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he began to read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to do something, right? To preach good news to the poor and recover of sight to the blind and all the rest. The, the anointing of God comes upon us to empower us for things. The last thing I want to note is that the anointing of God is for you. You know, sometimes we're tempted to read the Bible and we think, well, God just wanted to do these remarkable things through a, a, a you know, kind of a handful of mostly Old Testament Bible heroes or anti-heroes in Saul's case. If you know the rest of the story, he kind of, he didn't steward what God gave him well and he ended up losing his kingship. But actually, no, God said the, the promise, even on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood, and stood up and said, this promise is for you and for your children and for your children's children and for all who were afar off. I was pretty far off. I don't know about you. You might want to turn just um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul teaches into this quite a lot more about how actually this is to be the expectation for every New Testament Christian. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 21, it says this, he says, And God, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and us together corporately, who is, uh, hang on a minute, um, and who has put his seal on us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee or as a down payment. And what I want to do this morning is I, want to, I just want to nail, just drill down in detail on this a little bit and, and draw out a couple of different facets, a couple of different aspects of the filling of the Holy Spirit that he speaks about here. You'll notice that actually he's, he's talking about two distinct things. He's talking about being filled inwardly with the Holy Spirit. He's also talking about being clothed outwardly. He says this, he says he's put his seal on us. It's something that, that, that comes down and, and marks and identifies and stamps a person. It also says he has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Chinese house church leader, Witness Lee, writes about this very helpfully. And he, he describes being filled with the spirit and being clothed with the spirit. So many of the pictures that we see in scripture have to do with filling, infilling. So Jesus, for example, at one of the festivals he attended, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And, and whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within their soul, which he spoke about, the Holy Spirit. So the, the invitation is to come and drink. So if I have a drink, it's about him coming and being and filling on the inside of me. Jesus also said, actually, I want you to be clothed with power from on high. So actually, I can equally be clothed. This is less about me being filled with the Spirit of God. It's not about getting the Spirit in me so much as about getting me in the Spirit. It's not about my intimacy, my, my personal relationship with God. It's, it's outward facing. It's about the power and the authority that I have. It's about me having a cutting edge which will lep, 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 help me lead people to Jesus. It's a bit hot to be wearing this. <laughs> And you see, when he, when he talks about being clothed with power, the word he's using, I'm going to take this off, is talking literally about it like a, like a coat or a top coat, a mantle of power. It's the authority that we wear. When a police officer walks into a, onto a crime scene, the, the power and the authority that she has in that situation is, is, is evident by the uniform that she wears. 
it's clear and demonstrated for all to see who has authority in that situation. So I want to drill down on what happens when a person is filled with the Spirit and clothed in the power of the Spirit. And there's a, lot, there's a ton of different ways I thought we could do this. And actually, what, what I really love to do is just to look at the example of Jesus' closest friends, his disciples, just in the days just before he died and rose again and, and poured out his Spirit on them and the days just after. And we begin to see the, the, the radical transformation that happened in their lives. So you don't need to turn here, I'm not going to spend long here, but just right at the end of John's Gospel in chapter 20, Jesus has died, he's risen to life, and this is really the first time that he's meeting with his disciples in a, in a larger group together. He's seen the you know, ones and twos here and there, but he comes into the group of them, and he wastes no time in imparting the Holy Spirit to them. He's been looking forward to this moment for the, the three years that he's known them, and for eternity past. And it, it's, uh, verse 22, he says, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And something very powerful, very profound happened in that moment. There was no theatrics, there was no mighty rushing wind, there was no flame, there was no obvious outward manifestation, but something incredibly profound happened on the inside of them in that moment as they received the Spirit of the living God inside. I just want to look at a few ways that Luke, in, in his Gospel and in Acts, demonstrates what's changed there. Now, to understand the kind of contrast here, you have to understand the guys that we're dealing with, all right? So, of, of, of the tens of thousands of men, women, and children who ever walked with Jesus, ever sat at his feet, or would ever have been called his disciple, there were, there were like the 12, right? These were his kind of SAS squad of elite troops, you know. They were the ones who, who went everywhere, did everything. They were the ones that got sent out and and then amongst this elite 12, there were the three, right? You've got your Peter, James, and John. These were the guys that walked most closely with Jesus. They were his closest sort of allies. They were there when he got transfigured on the mountain. They were there when he raised the little girl from the dead. And they're there on the night that Jesus was about to be arrested. And this is Jesus' darkest hour. He's literally sweating drops of blood for the, for the terror of what's about to come upon him on the cross. And he says, guys, he just, you know, it's, it's just, just those three are left now, the kind of the cream of the crop, the elite three at the end of three years in the Jesus Discipleship School. And they can't pray with him an hour. Jesus is sweating drops of blood 50 yards over that way. And they can't even keep their eyes open to pray with him in his darkest hour of need. This is, this is, the, this is the people we're, we're talking about here. Okay? And so as we look at the end of Luke's Gospel... We begin to describe now they've received, he's breathed on them, they've received the Holy Spirit, how their lives have transformed. The very last verse in Luke, Jesus is just ascending to heaven. You think, wow, they must be gutted, like, you know, they've gone through this emotional roller coaster of he's gone and now he's back again, and oh no, no, he's off again. And you must have thought, wow, they must, they must just have lost it. No, no. He says they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. See, there was suddenly a fire of worship that had been lit on the inside of them. They were continually there. They couldn't get enough of going to church. They were just constantly, you get the sense of this never-ending flow of worship coming up in them. When someone's filled with the Spirit, there's the, a fire, a zeal for God lit on the inside of them. There was that insatiable appetite to worship and to be in His presence. 
And he says they return to Jerusalem with great joy. We were talking in our small groups this week. We were sharing our testimonies of, of how we became believers. And um, I remembered something which I'd, I'd not really thought about for years. And I'd, uh, I'd been, I was in school, I was 14, something years old, and uh, I'd been going to this cell group, small group, where I'd been, I'd been hearing the gospel. And, and I didn't have a lot of theological knowledge, but I, did, but I knew that if I surrendered my life to Christ, I'd be powerfully filled with the Holy Spirit. And we'd kind of made an agreement after months of fence-sitting that, um, that the next, I think it was a Thursday, if I remember rightly, we were going to go in the afternoon to our cell group. And, and that was the week we were going to pray, and we were going we to invite Jesus into our lives. We were going to be filled with the Spirit. And I, I, was, I was looking for, I was, my heart was bursting for this. And I remember it was the afternoon before. I was getting changed, having a shower after hockey training. And... Um, and I just began praying in my mind, oh God, I just want, I want to give my life to you. I, I believe in you, Jesus. Come and fill me with your spirit. And right there, as I'm putting my shirt on, God starts filling me. And I'm, and I'm there, and I'm, I'm, and I'm filled literally with holy laughter. I remember when I came home later on to my parents, they were like, what's gotten into you? And I thought, oh no, I've jumped the gun. I've, <laughs> I was supposed to wait until tomorrow afternoon. I'd like, no one prayed for me. I, I'm going to be rumbled. Because the joy of the presence of God. And then as we look, as we kind of, Luke's gospel just flows straight into the book of Acts and we begin to see how they picked up, we see this incredible prayer meeting. Well, these are the guys who couldn't even keep their eyelids open for an hour while Jesus is sweating blood. And they're here, and he says, and they, they, when they'd entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, these guys were there. This was a 10-day prayer meeting, night and day, worship fest. They were there. They, you know, they, they, they had come, they'd, they'd gone one, one night and two nights and five nights and six nights and seven nights. And I'm sure they could have carried on for a thousand nights, enjoying, worshiping, delighting in God who had filled them with his spirit. And then we see this amazing way in which God began to give them insight into the scriptures. I won't read the whole passage, it's really long, but... But, but they're reading, and, and, and they're reading things, scriptures they probably would have known since childhood. They were very familiar in the Jewish culture, but suddenly they began to get insight from the Holy Spirit. Hang on a minute, this, this is about what's going on now. Like th- this is about Judas. We need, to, we need to take some action. We need to do some things. And they begin to respond to what God is saying to them through suddenly having their minds open to the Bible. This is, this is what... John found some language for a little bit later on in, in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. He says, The anointing that you receive from him abides in you, or lives in you, is another way of saying that. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it's true, it's no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. He says, actually, that the the deposit of the Spirit within you actually will bring to your understanding and will teach you the things of God. Jesus taught his disciples, actually, to be expectant for this. When he was there at the Last Supper with them, he said, actually, the counselor is going to draw alongside you and he's going to bring to your remembrance all the things that I've taught you. He said, there's loads of stuff I'd love to tell you, but you you can't take it in now. But it's okay because the Spirit's going to come. He's going to awaken your hearts to the Scriptures. Don't you love those times when, 
when God comes along and you're reading something and you've read it before, but suddenly, you, suddenly the pieces come together in your heart. Suddenly you get it. There's a joy. And so the disciples were there and they were having a jolly old revival and it was getting into the eighth night and the ninth night and the tenth night and they're still there and it's night and day and they're going for it and they're worshipping. But there's something missing, isn't there? They probably could have carried on for a thousand more nights, but there was something missing. There was an aspect of what Jesus had promised and what Jesus had called them to that was missing. Because even as they were there enjoying their new life in God, the fire that was in their hearts... Nobody was having the gospel preached to them. Nobody was getting baptized. Nobody was getting saved. Nobody was getting healed. Nobody was getting delivered. The poor were not being lifted out of poverty. Nobody had anything prophesied. The, 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 the Great Commission had not budged an inch from the start line because they had been filled, but they hadn't been clothed with power. This is what Jesus had, had told them to wait for. He said, I want you to get together. I want you to pray for this. He says, it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Repentance and forgiveness of sins are going to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. He says, stay, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. They're probably thinking, well, hang on, we, we've already received the promise of the Father. We've had him for a month now. It's amazing. He says, No. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Until you are clothed with power from on high. He picks up again. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I don't know a lot of Greek. I probably know about five words of Greek. But I know the word for power. The Greek word dynamis. It's, a, it's, a, it's an evocative word. It's an explosive word. It's from where we get our English word dynamite. And you think, well, what, what's this for? I mean, Saul was, was anointed. There was, a, there was a cutting edge on his, on his leadership and on his, you know, what he did on the battlefield and his economics and everything else. But what, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for a New Testament Christian? He says, you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, even to the ends of the earth. It's about leading people to Jesus. It's what was missing they didn't have to wait long until the day of Pentecost when suddenly, that's my favorite word in the whole Bible, I think, I love the suddenly of God. <laughs> suddenly, he broke in. Many of you know the story. Suddenly, there was a sharpness and effectiveness to what they were doing. I was reading a couple of weeks ago um, the account of D.L. Moody. Have you guys heard of D.L. Moody? Yeah, a few of you like, like the old guys. That's good, that's good. Uh, D.L. Moody, if you don't know, was, was used a couple hundred years ago to, to lead thousands and thousands of people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, R.A. Torrey, who was, who was a great friend of his, wrote about the impact of, of the Spirit coming upon his life. How actually he started out as a struggling preacher, striving away, not really seeing any fruitfulness, any success in his ministry at all. He says this, he says, in his early days he was a great hustler. He had tremendous desire to do something, but he had no real power. And if you've got a real desire to do something for Jesus, he said, you work very largely in the energy of the flesh. But there were two humble free Methodist women who used to come over to his meetings in the YMCA. And these two women would come to Mr. Moody at the close of the meetings and say, we're praying for you. 
And finally, Mr. Moody became somewhat nettled. I like that. And he said to them one night, why are you praying for me? Go and pray for the unsaved. And they replied, we're praying that you may get the power. Mr. Moody didn't know what they meant, but he got to thinking about it. And then he went to these women and said, I wish you would tell me what you mean. And they told him about the definite baptism in the Holy Ghost. And he asked that he might pray with them and not merely they pray for him. Auntie Cook once told me of the intense fervor with which Mr. Moody prayed on that occasion. She told me in words I scarcely dare repeat, although I've never forgotten them. And he not only prayed with them, but he also prayed alone. Not long after, he was walking up Wall Street in New York. And in the midst of the bustle and hurry of that city, his prayer was answered. The power of God fell upon him as he walked up the street. And he had to hurry off to the house of a friend and ask that he might have a room for himself. And in that room, he stayed for hours. And the Holy Ghost came upon him, filling his soul with such joy that at last he had to ask God to withhold his hand lest he die on the spot from joy. (laughs) Here's the bit I love the most. He went out from that place with the power of the Holy Ghost upon him. And when he got to London, the power of God wrought through him mightily, and hundreds were added to the churches. Amen. And that was what led to his being invited over to the wonderful campaign, and there are many, many stories of what followed in his ministry. I love the story of here's a guy who's he's battling out, he's, he's laboring away, he's got every intention trying to fulfill the Great Commission. It's no avail. He was waiting, not knowing that there was a power available for him. There's a little bit more of, of Tori's account I just want to share before we finish. He says, I'll never forget the 8th of July, 1894, to my dying day. It was the closing day of Northfield Students Conference. Mr. Moody had asked me to preach on the baptism with the Holy Ghost. It was just exactly 12 o'clock when I finished my morning sermon, and I took out my watch and said, Mr. Moody has invited us to go up to the mountain at 3 o'clock this afternoon to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. It's three hours till 3 o'clock. Some of you can't wait three hours. You don't need to wait. Go to your rooms, go out into the woods, go to your tent, go anywhere where you can get alone with God and have this matter out with him. At three o'clock, we gathered up on the mountainside, and after a while, Mr. Moody said, I don't think we need to go any further. Let's sit down here. And we sat down on the stumps and logs on the ground. And Mr. Moody said, have any of you students anything to say? And I think about 75 of them arose, one after the other, and said, Mr. Moody, I couldn't wait till three o'clock. I've been alone with God since the morning service, and I believe I have a right to say that I've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. When these testimonies were over, Mr. Moody said, young man, I can't see any reason why we shouldn't kneel down here right now and ask God that the Holy Ghost may fall upon us just as definitely as he fell on the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Let us pray. And we did pray there on the mountainside, and we had gone up to them, and as we'd gone up, heavy clouds had been gathering, and just as we began to pray, those clouds broke, and the raindrops began to fall through the overhanging pines. But there was another cloud that had been gathering over Northfield for 10 days, a cloud big with mercy and grace and the power of God. And as we began to pray, our prayers seemed to pierce through that cloud, and the Holy Spirit fell upon us. 
men and women, that is what we all need. A baptism in the Holy Ghost. Amen? We're going to respond to this in a moment. In fact, would the band just be able to um, come back up onto the, onto the stage? I want to make an invitation. I think God wants to make an invitation to this, this morning to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. And I guess we can come to situations like this and kind of think, well, I'm not really, I'm not really in a good place for that. I'm not in a qualified place for that. What do I need to do? And I love what, what Jesus said, the way Jesus described the qualification. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. The qualification is not our experience, it's not our leadership, it's not how long we've been a Christian, it's not what kind of week we've had, it's not how prepared we are, it's the thirst, it's the hunger in our hearts. Bill Johnson, who leads Bethel Church, was asked once, what was the secret to seeing such a sustained outpouring of the Holy Spirit, leading to many thousands of physical healings and many thousands of people being baptized over many, many years? And they said, well, was it because you have you know, night and day prayer? Was it because you uh, are serious about holiness? Was it because you uh, did a particular kind of evangelism? Was it because you prayed for unborn babies or, or whatever it was, whatever recipes for revival people think they have? And he said, no, although we love those things. It's because we were hungry for it. Amen. And some people might be thinking, well, do I need this? You know, I was baptized in the Spirit in 1983. Am I good? You know, When Paul uses, or when Luke rather, uses that word baptize, he chose a word which means to dip something repeatedly. In fact, one of the earliest um, kind of contemporary manuscripts containing that word in, in the culture at the time is in a recipe for marinating pickles. It's about being soaked, it's about being saturated, it's about spending time in the presence of God. So just as we sing, I want to invite, first of all, let's stand together. I'm going to pray over us. I'm going to welcome the presence of God this morning, the suddenly of God. And maybe you're not called to be a preacher. Maybe you're not called to be a king for that matter. But if you are hungry for God to use you in whatever sphere you orbit, if you're hungry to reconnect with the God who loves you, to have that worship, that joy in your heart, in a moment, I'm going to invite you just to come down to the front here. We're going to pray. There'll be a few from the leadership team, from, from the eldership as well, just to pray with me for anyone who would have it. And we're going to invite the power and the presence of God to fall upon you. Let me pray first. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his incredible love for us. Thank you that when he died on the cross... He substituted himself, taking away the mess that we've made. I thank you that not one of us needs be in condemnation. Not one of us needs fear your judgment because you've carried it all away. But I thank you that was too small a thing. But God, you wanted to bring us back into deep relationship with you. So Lord, we thank you for your presence this morning and I pray right now right across this place in every heart fresh filling of the fire of God fresh filling of the presence the anointing of the Holy Spirit Lord we want oil in our lamps this morning will you come once again and fall upon us 
Lord, we want to worship you with the joy that they had. Lord, we want to pray with the excitement that they prayed with. We want to open our Bibles and get the revelation that they had. We want to love like they loved. And Lord, we want to lead thousands of people to relationship with you here and to the ends of the world. We say, come, Holy Spirit. If you are thirsty this morning, or if you are thirsty to be thirsty, and you love to be prayed for, as we sing, I'm going to invite you, don't be shy. Just come, there's some space at the front, we'll make more space if we need to. Site team, elders, if you just want to come as well, we're going to lay hands on as many as would want that. So just come forward now, if you want to be prayed for, if you want to receive a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit, we're going to pray and we're going to worship. We've got a song we can use. Amazing. That's great. Guys, come forward. We're going to pray. Thank you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit.